0: The following program is brought to you with support from the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the Global University, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell.
1: Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, we're back from our holiday break, and we start the new year with a look backwards at perhaps the biggest story in Latin America of 2014, the diplomatic breakthrough between Cuba and the United States. We'll hear the analysis of an expert who was in Havana during the announcement. But first, Gabriela Conchola is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America.
2: It's official. The Venezuelan government says the country is in recession. The central bank released figures showing the economy has been shrinking all year. The bank says the economy declined by more than 2% in the third quarter of 2014, and inflation is now running at more than 63% annually. In a speech this week, President Nicolás Maduro says falling oil prices and political instability have hurt his country. Maduro says he has a new economic plan to end the recession.
0: Our first strategy is to perfect our social economic model to redistribute our wealth to confront this issue.
2: Maduro's plan will involve new exchange controls on converting the country's currency to dollars. Maduro blames the U.S. for destabilizing the oil markets as a strategy to hurt both Venezuela and Russia. Cuban authorities broke up an anti-government demonstration this week by detaining as many as 50 dissident leaders, some for a few hours others a few days. The crackdown on dissidents came less than two weeks after Cuba and the United States announced an historic diplomatic breakthrough, which could lead to normal relations after more than a half-century of tensions. The dissidents had planned a protest led by performance artist Tania Bruguera in the Plaza de la Revolución in Havana, but the demonstration never happened. The U.S. State Department expressed concern over the detention of dissident leaders. We'll have more on Cuba, dissidents, and human rights later in the program. Brazil's newly re-elected president, Dilma Rousseff, officially took the oath of office for her second term this week. Rousseff, who is 67 years old, has vowed to extend social welfare programs that have lifted millions out of poverty. Rosef is a former left wing dissident who was arrested and tortured under Brazil's military rule. She was re elected for a second term by a narrow margin in October. Her government is facing a major corruption scandal involving state run oil company Petrobras. In her inauguration speech, Rosef promised to get the economy growing again. The presidents of Venezuela, Uruguay, Bolivia, and Chile were among leaders at the inauguration. In Brazil, a lightning strike kills a family of four on Praia Grande Beach. Authorities said one of the family members was pregnant. The lightning strike also left four others injured, two of them in serious condition. The victims were under a kiosk, sheltering from a storm when they were struck. The storm took down trees and power lines throughout Sao Paulo State, where the beach is located along the southern eastern coast of Brazil. Meteorologists and experts say the number of deaths caused by lightning is increasing in developing countries as a manifestation of climate change. For Latin Pulse, this is Gabriela Canchola.
1: Thanks, Gabriela. And now back to our focus on Cuba. Late last month, Presidents Barack Obama and Raul Castro announced their intentions to normalize relations between the U.S. and Cuba. This historic breakthrough continues to send shockwaves through the international community, and this program will give this topic a special focus throughout 2015. Eric Hirschberg was in Havana when this seismic change was announced. Hirschberg is the director of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. We reached him via Skype in Washington, D.C. Here are excerpts from our interview.
3: Well, it is a historic change. Um, It's been more than 50 years since the United States leveled an embargo on Cuba and opened um, more than a half century chapter of uh, tense diplomatic relations between the two countries. Um, And of course, um, in Havana, uh, the reaction was one of um, great enthusiasm, um, of surprise, um, of relief. Um, I think that during... The coming weeks and months, um, observers in Havana and also in the United States will come to see that um, while these are major changes and while the administration's pledge to seek normalization of relations with Cuba uh, is a historic move forward, um, it is going to take a considerable amount of time for the nuts and bolts of that normalization to begin to come in place. And there are as President Obama acknowledged, parts of the embargo, and for that matter, the embargo itself, uh, that can only be undone through congressional action, and and that's because of the 1996 Helms-Burton legislation that President Clinton signed, that removed from the president the latitude to unilaterally abolish the embargo. But what the president can do and will do, albeit gradually is to rewrite the regulations that dictate how um, licensing takes part, takes place, um, and that will open the way to an array of of different kinds of transactions with Cuba, financial matters, travel matters and the like, that while not entailing a complete opening, will signal an important step forward. At the same time, um, at some point, the president will announce a nominee for ambassador to Cuba, but it's quite clear that the Congress will not confirm uh, a nominee and that, therefore, while the U.S. may open an embassy or, in effect, um, transform its what is now the U.S. interest section in Havana into an embassy, there won't actually be an ambassador
1: there. Let's talk a bit about that political reality of how slow this normalization may turn out to be. As we're coming into 2015, we have a very conservative Republican Congress that is coming into power. Um, Aren't they going to make a bit of political hay and try to stop President Obama from making this as normalized as it could be, um, in very much the same way that they have been intransigent on Obamacare? Well, I think
3: that there will be an effort and it will be a successful effort by uh, Senator Rubio and others to keep the Republican Party um, almost unanimously um, united against allowing um, these reforms to go Any further than um, they absolutely have to accept because of executive um, autonomy on these questions. There are some Republican senators who will defect from the core position of their party. I mean, Rand Paul has already come out and said that he thought this was a reasonable step forward. Um, Senator Flake, of course, has long been an advocate of doing away with the embargo and normalizing relations. But aside from those two, we've not seen anyone in the Senate um, come forward to suggest that they will break from the Republican Party's united front on this. Um, It may be that some senators on some particular issues, such as the terms in which agricultural exports might Um, um, be expanded and the like, um, that on some of those issues, there'll be a little more flexibility. But on the whole, uh, the Republican Party will, in fact, unite to block this. And I expect to block even um, bringing up some of the elements of the reform um, for votes in the Congress. One of the things that I think also bears mentioning is that from the point of view of the Cubans, what this, re- what this reform entails is precisely a normalization of relations. Um, Raul Castro's term was that the countries would deal with one another in a civilized manner. This was the language that he used in reporting on the agreement on television um, at the same time that Barack Obama was speaking. Um, and what the Cuban leadership has said is that from their perspective, normalization means that just as the United States will not seek to change the political and economic system of Cuba, the Cubans will not seek to change the political and economic system of the United States. And while that may sound strange in Washington, that is in fact the ways in which decision makers in Havana see this. Um, And that's quite different from Washington because what you'll see in the rhetoric from the administration, as well as um, others, both for and against these changes, is that American policy is being cast in terms of how best to hasten a regime transition in Cuba. And um, nobody in the Cuban government sees um, these steps as related in any way toward a transition uh, that they do not see as on the agenda um, and that they do not um, consider to be a matter. Of um, relevance to the United States and to their bilateral relations with the United States. And so the Americans will continue to um, pursue policies that the Cubans will um, not welcome. Um, Just this week, the State Department released a request for organizations to submit statements of interest for $11 million of funding. Uh, for democracy promotion in Cuba. And so these are the programs, of course, that landed Alan Gross in prison uh, for um, attempting to subvert the Cuban state. And those programs continue to be articulated in terms of regime transition, which the Cubans will continue to see as subversive activity in violation of Cuban law. And so there will continue to be tensions between the two governments And I think here in Washington, there will be a gradual realization on the part of both advocates and opponents of these steps um, that uh, regardless of what rhetoric may come from the White House or from uh, Congress, and for that matter, from some civil society organizations in the U.S., the Cubans are not moving towards some kind of political transition. Uh, The Cubans have simply said that, yes, as they have said for decades, Um, they are prepared to pursue normal relations with the United States. um, And we'll see how that unfolds uh, over time. They're going to do it very much on their terms, uh, not on terms that are dictated to them from Washington.
1: It should be noted that the U.S. government settled out recently a claim with Alan Gross for $3.2 million because of uh, one of these democracy promotion programs that the Cubans saw as... Espionage. We've seen recent revelations about USAID supporting Cuban rappers and and other initiatives that some people think are, are just a little bit off the rails as we do this. And this speaks to this idea of political transition. This is this is actually the criticism that you hear coming from Miami and from South Florida in particular politically about the fact that there is no sign of a political transition, so why make this historic breakthrough now uh, when we talk about diplomacy? Well, the reason to make
3: the historic breakthrough now is that it's in the national interest of the United States to have smooth lines of communication with countries all around the world, regardless of whether we happen to like their political and economic system. Uh, It was in American interest to have relations with China, American interest to have relations with Vietnam. And it may be that some people in in Washington were deluded enough to think that normal relations meant that these countries would emulate the American political system. Uh, That's nonsense. Uh, it was nonetheless in our interest to um, move toward normal relations with those countries. And it has benefited both the United States and China and Vietnam, respectively, to have those normal relations. And Cuba will turn out, in my view, um, to follow that same pattern. To make the leap to suggest that, therefore, Cuba's political system would change um, is a significant leap of faith, Um, And I think that there are um, many reasons to believe that that is not the case, in the same way that Cuba's opening to the United States isn't going to change the American political system. Um, These things are are not related, and um, there is a very long history of the United States um, attributing to itself um, both the right and the capacity to impact domestic politics abroad Um, That um, long-standing convictions that will take a long time to go away. Uh, I think that the Obama administration does not do um, us a great service by casting the policies uh, in that light. And the purpose of normalization, again, um, is to advance the interests of the United States. Uh, And that's what this measure has done. Uh, I think that it is also... Um, of benefit to Cuba. It will benefit the Cuban people. It will also benefit the Cuban state. Um, The Cuban state um, is suffering from the fact that that economy is mismanaged and woefully lacking in capital that's needed to uh, generate the economic activity required to maintain limited degrees of welfare in Cuba, and to finance the state. Um, These measures will have a modest but significant impact on the Cuban economy at a time when it is in very serious straits. Um, But again, to connect that with the political transition strikes me as um, somewhat fantastical.
1: There do seem to be, as you pointed out, continued programs by the Obama administration to want to Um, push forward on these democracy promotion and some would say regime change programs. What are the problems that still confront us when we talk about human rights and when we talk about free speech in Cuba?
3: Well, I mean, clearly Cuba is an authoritarian political system. Uh, This much is clear. There's not debate on that matter. There is debate on... um, How harsh a dictatorship it is, uh, but that it's a dictatorship is not in dispute. Uh, The human rights constraints in Cuba are many. Um, It is a one party system. It is a political system that does not accept um, domestic opposition to the regime or domestic efforts to Organize um, opposition to the existing political system, or for that matter, to the single party, the communist party's dominance in the political system.
1: Thank you so much. Eric Hirschberg, the director of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University, our guest today again on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Rick. We'll be hearing more from that interview with Eric Hirschberg later this year. Of note, the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University has sponsored this program during our fourth season online and has collaborated with this program since it became an online radio project in 2011. And now some informational postscripts in their criticisms of the Obama administration's diplomatic initiatives. Conservative commentators have characterized Cuba as winning an ideological contest at a time when the country's economy makes living conditions in Cuba some of the worst in the hemisphere. A not-so-subtle nod to why some argue for a continuation of U.S. economic sanctions against the island. Indeed, most experts agree Cuba's economy has problems. However, the United Nations Human Development Index rates Cuba second only to Chile in Latin America, a rating that shows the strength of the Cuban educational and health systems. Haiti, Nicaragua, and Guatemala are at the bottom of that list in the hemisphere. Also, the World Bank rates the per capita gross domestic product of Cuba in the middle of the pack in Latin America, just ahead of the Dominican Republic and just behind Peru. Haiti, Nicaragua, and Honduras are at the bottom of that list. Coming up, Beyond Economics and Politics, we'll discuss the human rights challenges in Cuba Stay with us. This planet we call Earth. Abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call
3: for your free World Wildlife Fund action kit with 10 simple things you can do to help
1: leave our children a living planet. Call -CALL 1-800-CALL-WWF. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. As discussed on this program many times, part of the diplomatic challenges facing Cuba and the U.S. are the issues of espionage and political prisoners. As part of the diplomatic breakthrough, Cuba released U.S. contractor Alan Gross, who served more than five years in Cuban prisons, convicted on charges of espionage for connecting Cuba's Jewish community to the Internet via satellite. Cuba also released Rolando Saraf Torrijo, a spy who had penetrated Cuban state security at high levels for the U.S., but who was caught and served almost 20 years in prison. In exchange, the U.S. released the three remaining members of the espionage team known as the Cuban Five. The U.S. also negotiated the eventual release of 53 political prisoners, but the names on that list are still being kept secret by both countries. Cuba freed three members of the Cuban dissident group the Ladies in White early last month, but it remains unclear if those dissidents were part of the negotiated settlement. Cuban dissident groups list about 100 political prisoners on their lists who remain in prison, and dissidents have been critical of the negotiations between the U.S. and Cuban governments, saying they should have been consulted. As we heard earlier, this week Cuban authorities also detained dissidents to prevent them from planning and holding an anti-government demonstration in Havana. These incidents raise the issue of the continued problem of human rights and free expression on the island. One of the unresolved cases involves the death of dissident leader Osvaldo Payá two years ago. Payá was killed in a car accident. Payá's family and the driver of the car say Cuban state security forced the car off a rural road. The car's driver, Spanish youth leader Angel Caramero, was convicted of vehicular homicide he served some time in Cuban prisons and now is serving the rest of his sentence in Spain. Spanish authorities have Carameto on a program that sometimes limits his movements and is a type of electronically monitored probation. We talked to Phil Peters about the Paya case last month. Peters is the president of the Cuba Research Center. We reached him via Skype in Alexandria, Virginia.
4: Osvaldo Paya was a great man. He died a little over two years ago now. He was uh, an opponent of the Cuban government. He was a Cuban patriot. I think that among figures in the Cuban opposition, I think he was pretty unique, completely unique for his time, certainly, in, the, in that he organized a, a project, a petition drive, that actually enlisted the participation of Cuban citizens, and that set him apart. I don't mean any disrespect for, to the rest of the opposition at all. Uh they're brave people. But as a political matter what they they largely confine themselves to expressing their dissent with the Cuban government, denouncing different practices of the Cuban government and not engaging in in retail politics and in many ways projecting themselves more Outside of Cuba than to their f- fellow citizens and again, I'm not criticizing them it, it takes courage to speak out as they do, but Paya really stood apart in that he tried to get Cuban citizens involved two years ago in July uh, Paya and a colleague Harold Cepero took off for eastern Cuba with with two foreign nationals um, Angel Caromero from Spain and uh, the Swede uh, whose name escapes me right now.
1: That would be that would Aaron be Modig.
4: Oh, oh, yes. That's yes. right, Aaron Modig, exactly. And they were going to head to Santiago de Cuba, uh, all the way on the other, east, other side of the island, a long, long drive, and they had an accident along the way. I mean, I don't think we're gonna, ever going to know precisely what happened in, a, in, in the sense that it's going to be proven beyond a doubt to people outside of Cuba. There was a crash, so everybody agrees on that. Uh, Mr. Modig whom you mentioned claims that he remembers nothing. He says that he was sleeping remembers nothing and is willing not willing to say nothing and he won't talk about the subject except to denounce the Cuban government and uh, and um, he's now been elected to parliament. Uh Mr. Caromero he was convicted of vehicular manslaughter I think we we would call it in English of of negligence uh, at the wheel. He was convicted in a Cuban court, and because Cuba and Spain have an agreement whereby they allow persons uh, convicted and incarcerated in the other country's penal system to serve out their sentence at home, uh, Mr. Carromero was permitted to come to Spain after about four months in Cuba and to serve out the rest of his sentence in Spain. So he was in jail for a while, and he's got a... Uh, limited movement in Spain now as he continues to serve out the rest of his time.
1: He's more or, less, or less on house, house arrest.
4: Well, not exactly house arrest, but he's got one of those bracelets on and his movements are limited. He, actually, he came to the United States a few weeks ago for a week. He claims that, the, that a, a Cuban state security car drove them off the road. Uh, and my, my, my view is that I don't, I don't see that he's presented convincing evidence that, um, that that's the case. Uh, But he argues that and the family is trying to get he and the family are continuing to protest that an international investigation needs to take place.
1: Does this case have any effect on Cuban policy issues or is it just confirming that Cuban state security will continue to play rough, especially with those who are trying to push a democracy movement on the island?
4: It continues to be an issue in, in Cuban politics in the sense that the family, which now, by the way, lives outside of Cuba, uh, continues to raise it and to, to protest the lack of an international investigation. So it's, it's, it's in the public discussion. I don't think it proves that Cuban state security uh, is willing to play rough. I think, I think Cuban state security does play rough with, with, with dissidents quite often. It's not plausible to me, frankly. That the Cuban government would have would have uh, done this. I mean even if you even if one assumes, and this is this is very shaky to get into speculation like this, but nonetheless, even if you assume that the Cuban government decided that it needed to kill Oswaldo Paya or uh, I don't think that the way that that the Cuban uh, uh, security services or the security services of any country for that matter, Would choose to do it would be to do it uh, when there are two foreigners involved and to risk having them killed, having them get killed at the same time. That makes little sense. I mean, it's possible, but if if we're going to admit that possibility, I think we also have to admit the possibility that a terrible, terrible blunder occurred where people outside Cuba were, were Europeans funded to young politicians, to travel to Cuba to help the dissidents and to help this very distinguished man, Osvaldo Payá, and ended up getting him killed. We know that Mr. Caromero had his license suspended in Spain for a a, a long series of infractions. Many, he points out, were parking infractions, but others were speeding infractions. And it was published in a public notice in the Spanish newspapers, uh, as they do when they revoke the licenses of other Spanish citizens. And so this is a guy that was, uh, had such a bad record that, that the Spanish government revoked his driver's license, and this is the guy behind the wheel. So like I say, we outside aren't, aren't going to know, to our total satisfaction, exactly what happened on that July afternoon about 600 miles east of Havana in the middle of nowhere. If you're going to admit the possibility that maybe the Cuban government assassinated Paya uh, in that in a, in a fairly ham-handed way, I think we also have to admit the possibility that these Europeans that 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 Caramero, the driver, uh, got these guys killed.
1: Unless there's more you want to say about this case, you were recently in Cuba. I I wonder if you have some particular observations from that most recent trip and what you see regarding dissidents and human rights on the island.
4: Did not particularly focus on that, on that issue. I, I've, I've been looking into economic issues in, in my recent travels. Cuba is undergoing a, a, a process of economic reform that, that many Cubans complain is too slow, and I think probably if I were a Cuban, I would complain that it's too slow as well.
1: Thanks so much. Phil Peters, president of the Cuba Research Center, joining us via Skype from Alexandria, Virginia. Thanks for being on the program.
4: Thanks. It was a pleasure talking with you.
1: That concludes our program with a special focus on Cuba. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word. Dot org and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, producer Jim Singer and associate producer Gabriela Canchola, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo.
0: Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. The preceding program was brought to you with the support of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University.